0: well this morning i want to invite you to get your bibles and turn to exodus chapter 18 exodus chapter 18 and i'm going to read the text this morning Uh, you can have your bibles open i would encourage you to do that but it will be on the screen but let's stand together as we read exodus chapter 18 verses 1 through 12 verses 1 through 12. jethro the priest of midian Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming with the, uh, to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of coming under your word this morning. We are amazed at how relevant it is. We are amazed, Lord, at the the way in which it feeds our souls week by week. And Lord, we praise you that we have the, the word of God revealed to us, Lord, so that we can know you better that we can understand what it is you're doing with us, and, Lord, that we can pursue what it means to to live our lives in a way that would honor and glorify you. So, Lord, as we come to this text, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. Lord, what we are not, would you now make us. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, I'm sure that as you notice, this text... Um, is emphasizing one particular person, and that is the man Jethro. And it's interesting to me, as we we begin our time this morning, that in recent years, there's really been a push. There's really been an emphasis on trying to determine where you're from, uh, where your origins are, where your ethnicity comes from, where is the place of your ancestry. And there's a number of websites out there that have helped people to do that, to determine uh, not just uh, where your, what your family tree is, but who your relatives might be. And there's a desire just to know that you come from a particular place, from a particular country, a particular region, a particular town or village that you can connect to, that you can belong to, and maybe even travel to, to, to connect with your roots. Also, there's an emphasis to find what your true ethnicity is or a group of ethnicities that shape who you are. There's also a desire to know that you are somehow connected to someone famous. Uh, You know, there's probably some king somewhere or some lord somewhere that that is somewhere in your family tree. But I think most importantly, uh, they're looking to find possibly someone who is rich and dying and looking for a long-lost descendant who wants to come and live in their castle in Switzerland and carry on the family name. But honestly, at the core, we are intrigued because family matters. We want to know who we belong to. And as we come to our text, this text is Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. Now that statement I just I just made is is given to us four times in the text, but eight times in total we're, were emphasized in the text, the father-in-law of Moses. So this this is about Jethro, and it's about this relationship that Jethro has with Moses and his family. Now, his name, Jethro, is mentioned 12 times in the Bible, but Seven of those times are right here in our text. We're told that he's a Midianite. And the Midianites will eventually be enemies of Israel. But we're also told that he's a priest, which means that he's recognized to be a spiritual leader among his people. The Midianites were pluralists. They were very similar in the fact that they worshiped many gods just like the Egyptians did. He's also father-in-law, father-in-law to Moses through marriage to his daughter Zipporah. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses is welcomed into the family by Jethro and given permission to marry Zipporah. Then after the whole burning bush incident, Moses goes to Jethro and gets permission in chapter 4 to leave Midian and to go back to Egypt to his people, to see how they are doing. Now, the text doesn't say, but you have to wonder if Moses communicated some of the message that God had revealed to him as he went to Jethro, and as he explained, part of the reason to go back to Egypt. Now, when we look at this text in light of the context, God is seeking to communicate something very important. If you remember last week, we were in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and there we found Amalek, a nomadic tribe outside of Israel, who are ultimately opposed to Israel, and take advantage of the fact that they're on this journey, in particular, those who are straggling behind, and they come and they attack Israel. They're opposed to the Israelites. And of course, we saw there was a battle, and ultimately, Israel was victorious because of God's Deliverance and the banner that was held high. Now, in chapter 18, we find another person from outside of Israel, from Midian, but this person is not against Israel. In fact, he's very much for Israel. Therefore, there will always be those who oppose, even in a vigorous way, and there will be others who are in the process of being drawn. To the God of Israel. What we have here is a pagan outsider being drawn to embrace and worship the God of Israel. What we've been saying is the central theme of Exodus now is demonstrated for us once again that God is seeking to make himself known. Now, certainly so far, we've realized that God is seeking to make himself known to the Egyptians through all the plagues and all the interaction that happened in Egypt. But in all of that, God was also seeking to make himself known to his people. And he's still seeking to do that in the story. But God is also making himself known to the surrounding nations. Let me draw your attention back to chapter 15. And this is the song of Moses that takes place after they cross Um, uh, the the Red Sea and come into the wilderness. Notice notice what, what we find there. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 13 and following. Here's what it says. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength and your holy abode, or to your holy abode. The peoples, in other words, the nations, have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are, all, they are still as, as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And I hope that in reading that you see how what happened to Israel was, was also to make known this, this deliverance, this mighty power and arm of the God of Israel, the one true God, to the nations. Now, friends, this all brings us then to a point to say, what is this text about? Well, it's certainly about Jethro, and it's about Jethro ultimately coming to believe in the God of Israel. But for us today, it's a challenge. It's a call for God's children to testify about the good news of their salvation, their deliverance, so that others will know that the Lord alone is God. In in that sense, this is a gospel story that is brought into the context of this wilderness wandering that is wonderful and beautiful and displays God's work, not just in Israel, but among the nations, and in particular, in the heart of of Jethro. So God is making himself known through the testimony of his people. And as we move through our text, you will see a trajectory toward Jethro's confession. Begins with evidence, then moves to testimony, and finally we will see a glorious confession. Let's begin then with the surrounding evidence. This text starts abruptly by introducing Jethro, doesn't it? Priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, whom God is drawing to himself. And we will see here three evidences that Jethro is surrounded by that form a foundation and begin then to lead him to the place of faith in the God of Israel. And friends, it's a reminder that conversion is rarely something that happens in a moment. Now, certainly, conversion happens in a moment, right? You're saved and you're made alive in Christ. But what I'm trying to emphasize here is that there's often a journey, there's a process of God's drawing people to himself. People may may not see the evidence at first, although it is around them, But as they journey on, oblivious to God's providential work in them, the evidence is being laid so that the right time, at God's appointed time, their hearts are awakened and they truly believe. So what is the evidence that we find in this text? Well, in verses 1 through 5, this is what we find. First of all, there is news. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt so this news likely came from travelers and merchants that just were interacting and intersecting with other peoples maybe news told around the various watering holes the various oasis around the wilderness or maybe at markets where they were trying to share their goods and their cattle and exchange them But you can be sure that these drastic events that take place in a nation, in particular a nation like Egypt that is the mighty nation in that region, that this news would travel fast. So the reputation of Israel's Lord has started to spread. And in that spread, the evidence of God's faithful deliverance reaches the ears of Jethro. So this was not Moses that was communicating this news to Jethro. This was coming just through the general news that was permeating through the world at that particular point in time. Israel has been delivered from their slavery and delivered through the waters. And Egypt's pharaoh and Egypt's armies have been destroyed. That's pretty powerful news but friends it is news that is moving Jethro in a direction ultimately to believe secondly not only is there news but there are the sons There's some emphasis here in this text about Moses sons look at verse 2 now Jethro Moses father-in-law had taken Zipporah Moses wife after he had sent her home along with her two sons So in his home jethro had two grandsons living with him sons of moses and zipporah now we can't be sure why moses sent zipporah back to midian in exodus 4 uh, we have the last recorded interaction between moses and zipporah which was a rather tense interaction if you remember where she circumcises her son which ultimately appeases the lord the wrath of god And protects Moses and in an endearing statement says you are a bridegroom of blood to me we are knit together by this act and so her act ultimately saves Moses life now some scholars believe that Zipporah left in anger because they would they would interpret that whole deal differently Others believe that Moses sent them back in order to protect them so that they wouldn't have to be present while he was going through the plagues and so on and so forth. A few believe that Zipporah and his boys were actually with Moses during the whole time and that their going back to Jethro actually took place once they had crossed over uh, the the Red Sea and then they went back to Jethro um, at that particular point in time. But friends, all those ideas are speculation because we are simply not told. There's no commentary in scripture as to why Zipporah is sent back to Midian or even to believe that there was a, a problem with their marriage. What we can say in this text, or is that this text, gives us a divine reason why they go back, why they return. And the reason is so that God could keep evidence before jethro so that moses sons would be present and a daily testimony to jethro now before we actually get into the two sons one of the things we have to understand in particular in the old testament there was a there was a cultural custom and that was to give children names which have meanings or memories let me give you a few examples you probably know this Esau received his name because he was red. Jacob received his name because he took hold of his brother's heel, and his name means supplanter. Naomi means pleasant, but if you remember in the story, she wanted to change her name to Mara, which means bitter. In other words, reflecting what was going on in her life at that point in time. The name Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. Benjamin means son of my joy. You Remember the story there. And of course, Jesus means savior. So the, the, the name of a child, the naming of a child in that culture was not just something, you know, catalog what's popular this year. Um, it's it, It's communicating a story. It's communicating a truth. It's communicating a promise or a belief. So here, Moses has named his sons, and their names mean something and testify something. Gershom means sojourner in a foreign land. I mean, that's right there in the text, right? And Moses is saying, I am a sojourner in a foreign land, and then I met Zipporah and had Gershom. Eleazar means the Lord is my help and deliverer. And there's a sense in which, as he describes this in our text, Moses is looking back and he's writing out, um, what he's writing out fills in, so to speak, the gaps as to where and when God was his help and deliverer, and that is in Egypt with Pharaoh. And when you put the two names together, they tell the story of Moses' life. I was a stranger in a foreign land, but God is my helper Now friends these two names also describe what was happening to the people of Israel They were strangers in the land of Egypt but God was their helper saving them from the harshness of slavery and Pharaoh's sword and eventually leading them out of Egypt through the wilderness to the land of Midian to Horeb the mountain of God and as children of God It is also our story the world is not my home I'm just passing through by God's hand of help and by his hand of deliverance the point is this that every morning Jethro would get up and see his grandsons and he would say their names and he would be reminded of their meanings And each day would bring testimony and evidence that Jethro would have to think about and that God was using to prepare Jethro with. Each day, over and over again, Jethro is reminded that the Lord was going to fulfill the promise that Moses would no longer be a sojourner and that God would help and he he would use Moses to be israel's deliverer from egypt so again friends this is testimony this is evidence that is there around jethro that is part of the foundation of his move toward embracing the god of israel third there is this emphasis on the mountain i don't know if you caught this but look if you would please at verse five jethro moses father-in-law came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he he was encamped um, at the mountain of God. Now friends, that is pretty significant. You say, why is it significant? Because this is not the first time that we've heard about the mountain of God. See, Jethro hasn't even seen Moses yet since he left home in chapter four, but Jethro knows where to go to find Moses. How does he know? Well, if we jump back to chapter 3 in verse 1, uh, let me remind you of what God tells Moses there at the burning bush. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So where does Jethro go to find Moses' son-in-law? The mountain of God. Where is Moses standing right now (laughs) as the fruit of God's promise of deliverance? At Horeb, the mountain of God. See, the promise was given to Moses, but don't you think, now This is, again, this is speculation, but I think it's reasonable to say, don't you think that Moses shared some of the stuff that God had revealed about what was going to happen? So now, or so how, the question is, how do we validate what God has said is true? Well, you go to the mountain of God and you find out whether the promise is actually fulfilled because that's where God had told Moses to go and to worship him after the Lord delivered them from Israel, or delivered Israel from Egypt, I should say. So friends, get this. This journey to joy is working itself out through the evidence that is surrounding Jethro, the news being spread among the nations, the sons whose names testify of God's provision and help, and the mountain to which Moses is to return. When God delivers his people. Now friends, just just pause and just think about what God is choosing to reveal to us here. These little details are all important, aren't they? They are significant in telling the story. They're laying out for us the the data, the evidence, the means by which God was preparing and, and, and showing and testifying to Jethro about himself. Now, secondly, I want you to notice not only the surrounding evidence, but the family reunion that now takes place. Jethro arrives at Horeb, the mountain of God with Zipporah and the boys. And what we have here is a rather typical Middle Eastern family reunion. Now, when we think of a family reunion, we typically think of hot dogs and hamburgers, meeting extended family that we never knew existed, uh, reminiscing about great aunts and uncles, that have passed away, looking maybe at a family tree and figuring out who's who, learning about your crazy Uncle Cedric who is on his fifth marriage, or about eccentric Aunt Mabel who has 14 cats. But the reunion that is taking place here is much more like meeting up with your father who's been on deployment in Iraq. You're so glad to see them to know that they're safe to wrap your arms around them to welcome them home so jethro arrives with zipporah and moses sons and what we have here is a great middle eastern family reunion and there are specific things that are in the text that reveal that middle eastern culture and i want you to notice them first of all what we find here is that word was sent. All right? So Jethro sends word to Moses that he is coming with Zipporah and his sons. And then what we find is that Moses goes out to meet them. He doesn't just sit back and stay or, or get the house and prepare it and that kind of stuff and wait for them to come. No, he goes out to meet them. And when he Gets there, he bows down to Jethro, he kisses him. So what we have here is affection. And then there's this asking of welfare. How are you doing? But there's a warmth, there's a wonder, there's a beauty to this whole ceremony that's taking place here. This is all Middle Eastern custom. And it's telling us that they greet each other with politeness, dignity, and honor. There is a mutual respect and affection being expressed by all. Now friends, it's a reminder that as believers, we should seek to maintain relationships with family and to treat them with respect as much as possible. This mutual respect is a platform from which they can consider the gospel that you embrace and believe. When we need to learn to be strong in our faith, understanding that they don't know the Lord, but loving them anyways. And friends, if there's not appreciation, affection, or respect, there will be human hurdles created that your unsaved family member will need to overcome to genuinely hear the gospel through you. Friends, God has called us to reach out to the lost, especially in our own families. And of course, oftentimes that's the hardest place, isn't it? But we are to do that with the love of Christ. So we care for your husband or your wife. You honor your parents if they're unbelievers. You're serving your brother and sister who may be an unbeliever. You are showing hospitality. You're strengthening family ties. You're respecting your family members as people. Why? Because your love for them is essential to effective evangelism. Listen, unbelievers don't know if what you're telling them is true. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them to read the Scriptures and understand it like you do. They just see it as as words and stories they can't comprehend. It's not that there's anything magical or mystical, but with the Holy Spirit in us, he illumines the word of God. He helps us understand. But what they do know, friends, what they can be sure of is that we love them, and that we respect them, and that we want them around And sometimes we're afraid of our unbelieving family because of the lives that they live and the choices they have made. We don't want our children to be around them. We fear their influence. And so we avoid them and only show them a measure of love rather than a lavish Christ-like love. Now, you don't have to agree with your loved ones in order to love them. You just have to love them, treat them with respect, honor them, and welcome them into your home. Friends, I wonder. I wonder if in our contemporary American Christian culture, if we are guilty of idolizing a safe Christian bubble for our immediate family to the neglect of loving our unbelieving relatives. Do they know that they are loved? Or do they feel treated as second best because they're not followers of Christ? Now, friends, those are, those are difficult questions and they have some nuances that we have to think through. I'll say something about that at the end. But friends, there's this mutual respect that we see here in this relationship between children of God and, and one in particular who is not a follower of the God of Israel, but who is being drawn. Secondly, what we find here is honest testimony. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So when they get into the tent, Moses tells Jethro all that God had done all they had done to Pharaoh, all they had done to Egypt for Israel's sake. And he recounts the events under two headings, uh, hardship and then deliverance. In other words, Moses gave testimony to the recent events, and he's not just talking about the good bits. He's also talking about the difficult bits, the times when they struggled, even the times when God's people sinned. Now, if we were in that tent like a fly on the wall, we might have heard something like this from Moses. Oh, Jethro, Pharaoh and the Egyptians thought to do us great harm. They increased the suffering of our enslavement, but God proved himself to be greater than Egypt and their gods Especially Pharaoh, all the plagues that he wrought, the way he protected us in the midst of those plagues was truly amazing. And God delivered us. We crossed through the Red Sea as if we were on dry ground. The Lord parted the waters, and we went down into the midst of the sea and crossed safely over the other side. Jethro, you should have seen it. But there was trouble ahead as we entered into the wilderness we found that there wasn't any water. And the people, they were just discouraged. And we finally found an oasis, an oasis where we we thought the water was drinkable, but when we we tested it, we found that it was bitter, and the people began to grumble. It was terrible. But Jethro, you should have been there because the Lord showed me a tree, and he told me to put that tree in the water, and, and he turned that bitter water into sweet water. It was amazing. And the people were able to satisfy themselves on that water. God provided. And then a little while later on the journey, we found that there wasn't any food. We were hungry, and the people were discouraged again, and they began to grumble. But Jethro was truly amazing because in the evening, the Lord brought us quail like you've never seen. And in the morning, we had the the bread of heaven to feast upon. But, but that's not all, Jethro. There's more to the story. We just left a place where, where we were again out of water, and, and God instructed me to, to strike a rock. And in striking the rock, water gushed out and was there to satisfy all the people. It was amazing. Jethro, believe me, the last three months have been one thing after another. We even had to fight off the Amalekites who attacked the people of Israel who were struggling on the journey. Oh, we quickly gathered an army together of men who'd never fought, but, but they all looked to the banner that God had raised on the hill, and he delivered us from those enemies. It has been a terrifying, daunting, fearful, uncertain journey. My people have grumbled, argued, they've rebelled, and they've even accused God of murder. But every time we faced a new trial, every time we put him to the test, he was faithful because of his covenant love to carry us through, to deliver us, to guide us, to protect us, to provide for us. And friends, Moses here is giving a much more detailed testimony to God's faithfulness in saving his people. A testimony that adds to the surrounding evidence For Jethro to see that the Lord truly is God and worthy of exclusive worship. Now friends, when you are with your unbelieving family, do you share the experiences with Christ that you're going through? I'm not talking about speaking Christianese with them. But when they ask you how you and your family are doing, do you share your response couched in God's providence and care for your family? Do you talk about a struggle you faced and that you were going to the Lord in prayer and and that God showed himself faithful to lead and guide and provide for you? Do you attribute your health and well-being to God's kindness? Do you speak about your life experiences in such a way as to demonstrate that God is good and worthy of your worship? You see, here Moses, is adding to the evidence by giving this testimony this personal testimony of living and experiencing and worshipping and depending on the God of Israel. So how does Jethro respond to Moses' words of testimony? We read in verse 9 and Jethro rejoiced. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians now friends this is no small statement it's not just a feeling of thanksgiving the Hebrew word translated rejoiced is a unique word it's only used three times in the Hebrew Bible it literally means to sharpen to shudder to cut deeply. Therefore, it conveys the idea of an overwhelming sense of joy, the kind of happiness and joy that penetrates or cuts to the person's heart or soul. So this is a penetrating joy. And as we look at this text, we can conclude that this is the moment of conversion for Jethro. His heart is overwhelmed by the mounting evidence and the testimony before him that he has cut deep with joy because of the news of God's favor by bringing about Israel's deliverance. Now, friends, we find a similar expression in the New Testament, don't we? In particular, we find it when Peter is preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that he goes through his sermon and here is how the people uh, respond. Luke records for us what they were saying. But what happened? It says in Acts chapter two and verse fifty-seven, and uh, verse thirty-seven and thirty-eight, they were cut to the heart, and said to Pharaoh and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, this this language. Is speaking about conversion. It's speaking about God doing a work in a heart, a radical work. And it's important to remember that the events of Israel in Egypt are meant to point to Yahweh as the one true God. Let me remind you of chapter nine and verse sixteen, where we're uh, we're finding God speaking to to Pharaoh. He says, "But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power." so that my name may be proclaimed, not just in Egypt, but in all the earth. And as Moses' song says, the peoples have heard and they tremble. Friends, our salvation, our deliverance, our story of God's faithful work in our lives is one of the many evidences that God uses to draw people to himself. And and those whose eyes are opened and whose hearts are awakened will respond with rejoicing at this good news. Now, friends, I wonder if, in this time of being sheltered in place and facing the struggles of COVID-19 restrictions, that your extended family hears more from you about Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, or Gavin Newsom. When the person that should be coming out of your lips is the one on whom you claim to put your faith and trust none other than jesus christ you see what kind of testimony are we giving to our unbelieving family members it's an important question and it's a powerful question that we need to consider As we move on now from this family reunion, I want us now to get to this genuine confession. Because all of what we've just read in one sense is background to what we now see in these few verses at the end of this text. Jethro says, blessed be the Lord. Jethro says, now I know, right? Now we should not see this confession as a pattern. In other words, it's a description of what happened. It's not a prescription of what happened. Should happen. But I think what we have here are elements in this confession that help us see what is common to the confessions of true saving faith. So I want to begin here and just kind of summarize what we already read in verses 1 through 8. First of all, there's knowledge of who God is and what God has done, the evidence has been mounting. Jethro has been able to to have a, a better awareness of who God is. And he certainly is aware of what God has done, not just from the general public and not just from the the names of Moses' sons, but from the very lips of Moses himself. And as a result, he is convinced that the Lord has, in fact, delivered Israel and Moses. And Moses has arrived back at Horeb, the mountain of God, just as God promised. And of course, Jethro could step outside the tent and he could look and see all of Israel gathered there so there's knowledge secondly we saw that there is joy he's cut to the heart with the good news of Israel's deliverance and is now rejoicing with Moses but as we pick it up in verse 10 I want you to notice that there is also approval Jethro said blessed be the Lord And when he says, blessed be the Lord, he's giving approval to what he has heard the God of Israel has done for his people. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. This is approval for God's work. This is approval for what God is still doing. And friends, genuine faith gives approval for God's work among the peoples it rejoices at God's deliverance and delights in hearing more and more about gospel progress in the life of the family in the life of friends and around the world so knowledge joy approval next is trust Did you catch this verse 11 now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. So this expression, now I know. Jethro here is convinced that the Lord, the great I am, is greater than all gods. And the reason he gives that is, is in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. What he's saying is that Egypt... With their many gods and with Pharaoh, whom the Egyptians considered to be deity, chose to ignore Israel's true God. You saw that at the beginning of the story. Why should I even bother to listen to you, Pharaoh? This is when he first came. We're talking about the God of Israel. I mean, what kind of God is he? You're all slaves. Why should I, the God of Egypt, listen to the God of Israel? See, they would not listen to him. They thought that they were above him. Now, this is a striking statement, friends. In light of where Jethro is coming from, remember, he is a priest of Midian. And he's been leading the Midianite people in worship of their many gods. Remember, they were pluralists. They were actually very much like the Egyptians. And now Jethro is saying, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, not just the gods of Egypt, but the gods of Midian. He's turning his back on what was central to his life and beliefs. And Jethro is embracing the place of Israel's God as the one true God who is above all other gods. Friends, that's significant, that's fruit. That's evidence of genuine saving faith and trust. Knowledge, joy, approval, trust. Next one is worship. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. So here we have another evidence And it's it's the desire, as best you know how, in the simplicity of your new conversion, to offer worship to the one who has delivered you. And we find it here in the form of a burnt offering and other sacrifices. The burnt offerings, then, uh, were were understood to atone for past sins and to appeal for forgiveness and acceptance. The other sacrifices, because this burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Those other sacrifices are offered to make sure to cover for any inadequacies in approaching such a powerful and omnipotent God so that Jethro would be accepted into genuine fellowship with God Himself. In other words, you have this, this burnt offering, but these other sacrifices basically covered all the other issues. This was an act of worship, this was an act of praise. This was an act of of celebration. This was an act of affirmation. Knowledge, joy, approval, trust, worship, and finally here, fellowship. Notice what it says. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now friends, evangelism leads to worship. And Jethro is now worshiping as a member of a worshiping community. But that worship also leads to fellowship. This was likely a covenant meal celebrated by all who are worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, Jethro identifies himself with the people of God, not just in the worship, but also in the covenant celebration and fellowship. Because it says here, they're eating this bread before God. And friends, this is remarkable because, friends, it was the Midianites who brought Joseph into slavery. They will later in the days of Gideon raid Israel as enemies of Israel. In the Numbers chapter 25 and verse 17, God will tell the Israelites to treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. And friends, it's a reminder that the kingdom of God is made up of all sorts of people. And many of those people are from tribes and nations you would never expect to come down and bow down to the God of Israel. And friends, that is the point of this text. God wants us to see that he is working his will in drawing people from every language, people, tribe, and nation. And he is not done and god has given us a message to proclaim in words in deeds in attitudes Now, friends i want to bring this to a close with a a number of statements because i think there's things that for us to to think through here the emphasis in this text is on the evangelistic efforts through evidence and testimony On a family member, but it can be certainly broader than that, right? But the the emphasis here is on a family member. So I want to carry that theme out. Much of what we said here can also just be general principles to reaching out to the lost, but I think family members can be difficult to interact with at times. So let's begin by asking this question or 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 looking within. And ask the question as we're asking, or we're saying look within. What is hindering you from having this evangelistic edge? Have you allowed yourself to be more concerned for self preservation than you are for gospel proclamation? Am I gonna am I gonna bow down and worship self-preservation, making sure my family is safe, making sure that they're unaffected, making sure that nothing, no bad influences come and somehow have an effect on them, or am I, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, doing that to the neglect then of gospel proclamation? Now, friends, the Christian bubble has its place, but it is an attempt to have an earthly utopia. God has actually called us to be in the world, but not of the world. The utopia that is awaiting us is a utopia in heaven, right? And the church is the Christian bubble that we are thankful for and enjoy. In the midst of the world, there are pockets, havens, places where God's people gather together and find encouragement and strength and and, and help. And when they're fed by the word, they're encouraged by all the one and others that take place. But then they have to go back out into the world and interact with the world. But I wonder whether or not what we've done is created bubble, 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 bubble. And we're actually not interacting much with the world. See, we're called to live our lives in the world. Not to love the world or the things that are in the world, but to live our lives as salt and light in the context of an unbelieving world. That doesn't sound like bubble safety to me. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should, you know, abandon homeschooling or abandon Christian schools. I'm simply asking you to consider if you have developed an attitude of self-preservation that has had a negative impact on your gospel proclamation, in particular with your family. Have you been guilty of distancing yourself from your unbelieving family when God has given you the opportunity to pursue them in a Christ-like way for his glory? Now, on the other side of the coin, I'm certainly not advocating that you ignore your responsibility to guard your heart, to protect your children, or to practice discernment or wisdom simply to have a gospel witness. All right? We have to sort through these things with wisdom and discernment. But I, I think theres it's much easier just to say, you know what, let's just live in the bubble. But when we do that, friends, we let the joy of gospel proclamation slip away because we have been so comfortable in the bubble that we've created. It's certainly easier, isn't it? You don't have to sit down and have discussions about, what's going on in this world, and what does it look like, and what do you think, and it's just better. We want to we have an echo chamber that just says the same thing. We understand that. It's the church. We want to we hear the truth of God. But it's much easier to not have to have that kind of engagement. Look within. What is hindering you? Secondly, look around. Who's looking at you? As I started to talk about Jethro this morning and our need to be a witness to our unsaved family, What faces came to your mind? Because there were faces that came to your mind. (laughs) I'm sure there were. I'm sure there are right now. And the question is, what are you doing in your life to take time to show them and speak to them and testify of God's faithfulness? Now, I'm not talking about being preachy. I'm not talking about forcing them to listen to your stories you know a bait and switch kind of a conversation but I'm talking about natural free-flowing gospel proclamation that speaks to both love uh, them as well as glorify God you just speak naturally about the fact that you know yes this week I was I was having some difficulty and I took some time to pray and and someone came by, it was just really God's blessing that he did that. You know, it's, it's casual, it's not Christianese, it's just talking about where your trust is and how you think through life and, and how you see God's hand at work. When you do that, you're allowing the mounting evidence to take root in God's timing. Friends, hear this, it's never too late to initiate a relationship because you love your family and you want to glorify God. Third, look within, look around, look up. And the question here is, who is at work in you? If there's one theme screaming from this text, it's this. Don't give up on your unbelieving family. Trust God to be giving evidence of himself through his own means and also through your example to bring about and to draw people to himself. And when you have opportunity, testify to the goodness of God. Speak about the difficulties you face, how hard it's been. Speak about the provision of God, how he provides in in the end as we are all gathered together in heaven, and we're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, just listen to what it says. Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will fear, O Lord? And glorify your name for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed you see the connection here what we have in our text is God's evidence brought about to one particular person the surrounding evidence the testimony evidence The rejoicing and the confession and declaring that the the God of Israel is the only God. He's above all other gods. Who can do that? Friends, you can't. You can't make that happen. God has to make that happen. And God is the one who's at work in them. But God uses means And one of the means he uses is the faithful testimony of his children in the lives of those who are unbelievers. And we just trust that in our faithfulness that God is doing his work and accomplishing his purpose in drawing people to himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this example, Lord, because we have friends, we have loved ones, we have acquaintances, we have co-workers, Lord, who do not know you. And Sometimes, Lord, we we are awkward in thinking about truly answering a question or sharing uh, how we are wrestling with things that are happening in our lives. We want to testify of your goodness, but often out of self-preservation, we don't. Lord, give us Freedom to speak of your majesty, your goodness, your providence, and your deliverance in our lives. Lord, help us speak freely about how you work day by day. Lord, help us to to speak freely of your kindness. Lord, even of, of the difficulties we face and the struggles that we face and the hardships that we have to endure, and yet how when we come to you, you guide us, you teach us, you shape us. You counsel us, Lord, through your word. May we be mindful that as we live our Christian life in this wilderness, that one of the responsibilities that we have is to give glory to your name, to reflect who you are, what you have done, and the great, good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that are around us. Help us, Lord, to be genuine and truthful. And, Lord, if this is awkward for us, Lord, give us tools, give us freedom, give us wisdom, give us joy. And, Lord, may we trust you as we do it. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.